CD6 The jeweller turned the gold slowly over the tiny anvil, tapping the last strangely cut diamond into place. From a troll's tooth, you say? he muttered, squinting closely at his work. Yes, said Cohen. And as I say, you can have all the rest. He was fingering a tray of gold rings. Very generous, murmured the jeweller, who was dwarvish and knew a good deal when he saw one. He sighed. Not much work lately, said Cohen. He looked out through the tiny window and watched a group of empty-eyed people gathered on the other side of the narrow street. Times are hard, yes. Who are all these guys with the stars painted on? said Cohen. The dwarf jeweller didn't look up. Madman, he said. They say I should do no work because the star comes. I tell them stars have never hurt me. I wish I could say the same about people. Cohen nodded thoughtfully as six men detached themselves from the group and came towards the shop. They were carrying an assortment of weapons and had a driven, determined look about them. Strange, said Cohen. I am, as you can see, one of the dwarvish persuasion, said the jeweller. One of the magical races, it is said. The star people believe that the star will not destroy the disc if we turn aside from magic. They're probably going to beat me up a bit. So it goes. He held up his latest work in a pair of tweezers. The strangest thing I ever made, he said. But practical, I can see that. What did you say they were called again? Dinchewies, said Cohen. He looked at the horseshoe shapes nestling on the wrinkled palm of his hand, then opened his mouth and made a series of painful grunting noises. The door burst open. The men strode in and took up positions around the walls. They were sweating and uncertain, but their leader pushed Cohen aside disdainfully and picked up the dwarf by his shirt. "'We told you yesterday, small stuff,' he said. "'You go out feet down or feet up, we don't mind. So now we're going to get really...' Cohen tapped him on the shoulder. The man looked around irritably. "'What do you want, Grandad?' he snarled. Cohen paused until he had the man's full attention, and then he smiled. It was a slow, lazy smile, unveiling about three hundred carats of mouth jewellery that seemed to light up the room. "'I will count to three, he said in a friendly tone of voice. One, two. His bony knee came up and buried itself in the man's groin with a satisfyingly meaty noise, and he half-turned to bring the full force of an elbow into the kidneys as the leader collapsed around his private universe of pain. Three he told the ball of agony on the floor. Cohen had heard of fighting fair and had long ago decided he wanted no part of it. He looked up at the other men and flashed his incredible smile. They ought to have rushed him. Instead, one of them, secure in the knowledge that he had a broadsword and Cohen didn't, sidled crabwise towards him. Oh, no, said Cohen, waving his hands. Oh, come on, lad, not like that. The man looked sideways at him. Not like what? he asked suspiciously. You never held a sword before. The man half turned to his colleagues for reassurance. Not a lot, no, he said. Not often. He waved his sword menacingly. Cohen shrugged. I may be going to die, but I should hope I could be killed by a man who could hold his sword like a warrior, he said. The man looked at his hands. Looks all right, he said doubtfully. "'Look, lad, I know a little about these things. "'I mean, 
Come here a minute, and do you mind? Right. Your left hand goes here, around the pommel, and your right hand goes, that's right, just here, and the blade goes right into your leg. As the man screamed and clutched at his foot, Cohen kicked his remaining leg away and turned to the room at large. This is getting fiddly, he said. Why don't you rush me? That's right, said a voice by his waist. The jeweller had produced a very large and dirty axe, guaranteed to add tetanus to all the other terrors of warfare. The four men gave these odds some consideration and backed towards the door. And wipe those silly stars off, said Cohen. You can tell everyone that Cohen the Barbarian will be very angry if he sees stars like that again, right? The door slammed shut. A moment later, the axe thumped into it, bounced off, and took a sliver of leather off the toe of Cohen's sandal. Sorry, said the dwarf. It belonged to my granddad. I only use it for splitting firewood. Cohen felt his jaw experimentally. The dean-chewers seemed to be settling in quite well. If I was you, I'd be getting out of here anyway, he said. But the dwarf was already scuttling around the room, tipping trays of precious metal and gems into a leather sack. A roll of tools went into one pocket, a packet of finished jewellery went into another, and with a grunt the dwarf stuck his arms through the handles on either side of his little forge and heaved it bodily onto his back. Right, he said, I'm ready. You're coming with me? As far as the city gates, if you don't mind, he said. You can't blame me, can you? No, but leave the axe behind. They stepped out into the afternoon sun and a deserted street. When Cohen opened his mouth, little pinpoints of bright light illuminated all the shadows. I've got some friends round here to pick up, he said, and added, I hope they're all right. What's your name? Lackjaw. Is there anywhere around here where I can... Cohen paused lovingly, savouring the words, where I can get a stake? The star people have closed all the inns. They said it's wrong to be eating and drinking when... I know, I know, said Cohen. I think I'm beginning to get the hang of it. Don't they approve of anything? Lackjaw was lost in thought for a moment. Uh, setting fire to things, he said at last. They're quite good at that. Books and stuff. They have these great big bonfires. Cohen was shocked. Bonfires of books? Yes, horrible, isn't it? Right, said Cohen. He thought it was appalling. Someone who spent his life living rough under the sky knew the value of a good thick book, which ought to outlast at least a season of cooking fires if you were careful how you tore the pages out. Many a life had been saved on a snowy night by a handful of sodden kindling and a really dry book. If you felt like a smoke and couldn't find a pipe, a book was your man every time. Cohen realised people wrote things in books. It had always seemed to him to be a frivolous waste of paper. I'm afraid if your friends met them, they might be in trouble, Lackjaw said sadly as they walked up the street. They turned the corner and saw the bonfire. It was in the middle of the street. A couple of star people were feeding it with books from a nearby house, which had its door smashed in and had been daubed with stars. News of Cohen hadn't spread too far yet. The book burners took no notice as he wandered up and leaned against the wall. Curly flakes of burnt paper bounced in the hot air and floated away over the rooftops. What are you doing? he said. 
One of the star people, a woman, pushed her hair out of her eyes with a soot-blackened hand, gazed intently at Cohen's left ear, and said, "'Ridden the disk of wickedness!' Two men came out of the building and glared at Cohen, or at least at his ear. Cohen reached out and took the heavy book the woman was carrying. Its cover was crusted with strange red and black stones that spelled out what Cohen was sure was a word. He showed it to Lackjaw. "'The Necrotelecomnicon!' said the dwarf. Wizards use it. It's how to contact the dead, I think. That's wizards for you, said Cohen. He felt a page between a finger and thumb. It was thin and quite soft. The rather unpleasant organic-looking writing didn't worry him at all. Yes, a book like this could be a real friend to a man. Yes, you want something? he said to one of the star men who had gripped his arm. All books of magic must be burned, said the man, but a little uncertainly, because something about Cohen's teeth was giving him a nasty feeling of sanity. Why, said Cohen, it has been revealed to us. Now Cohen's smile was as wide as all outdoors, and rather more dangerous. I think we ought to be getting along, said Lackjaw nervously. A party of star people had turned into the street behind them. I think I would like to kill someone, said Cohen, still smiling. The star directs that the disc must be cleansed, said the man, backing away. Stars can't talk, said Cohen, drawing his sword. If you kill me, a thousand will take my place, said the man, who was now backed against the wall. Yes, said Cohen, in a reasonable tone of voice. But that isn't the point, is it? The point is... You'll be dead. The man's Adam's apple began to bob like a yo-yo. He squinted down at Cohen's sword. There is that, yes, he conceded. Tell you what, how about if we put the fire out? Good idea, said Cohen. Lackjaw tugged at his belt. The other star people were running towards them. There were a lot of them. Many of them were armed, and it began to look as though things would become a little more serious. Cohen waved his sword at them defiantly and turned and ran. Even Lackjaw had difficulty keeping up. Funny, he gasped, as they plunged down another alley. I thought, for a minute, you'd want to stand and, and fight them. Blow that, for a lark. As they came out into the light at the other end of the alley, Cohen flung himself against the wall, drew his sword, stood with his head on one side as he judged the approaching footsteps, and then brought the blade around in a dead flat sweep at stomach height. There was an unpleasant noise and several screams, but by then Cohen was well away up the street, moving in the unusual shambling run that spared his bunions. With Lackjaw pounding along grimly beside him, he turned off into an inn painted with red stars, jumped onto a table with only a faint whimper of pain, ran along it, while, with almost perfect choreography, Lackjaw ran straight underneath without ducking, jumped down at the other end, kicked his way through the kitchens, and came out into another alley. They scurried around a few more turnings and piled into a doorway. Cohen clung to the wall and wheezed until the little blue and purple lights went away. <sighs> well, he panted, what did you get? Um, the cruet, said Lackjaw. Just that? Well, I had to go under the table, didn't I? You didn't do so well yourself. Cohen looked disdainfully at the small melon he had managed to skewer in his flight. "'Things must be pretty tough here,' he said, biting through the rind. 
Want some salt on it? said the dwarf. Cohen said nothing. He just stood holding the melon with his mouth open. Lackjaw looked around. The cul-de-sac they were in was empty except for an old box someone had left against a wall. Cohen was staring at it. He handed the melon to the dwarf without looking at him and walked out into the sunlight. Lackjaw watched him creep stealthily around the box, or as stealthily as is possible with joints that creaked like a ship under full sail, and prod it once or twice with his sword, but very gingerly, as if he half expected it to explode. It's just a box, the dwarf called out. What's so special about a box? Cohen said nothing. He squatted down painfully and peered closely at the lock on the lid. What's in it? said Lackjaw. You wouldn't want to know, said Cohen. Help me up, will you? Yes, but this box... This box, said Cohen, this box is... He waved his arms vaguely. Oblong? Eldritch said Cohen mysteriously. Eldritch? Yup. Oh, said the dwarf. They stood looking at the box for a moment. Cohen? Yes? What does Eldritch mean? Well, Eldritch is... Cohen paused and looked down irritably. Give it a kick and you'll see. Lockjaw's steel-capped dwarf boot whammed into the side of the box. Cohen flinched. Nothing else happened. I see, said the dwarf. Eldritch means wooden. No, said Cohen. It it oughtn't to have done that. I see, said Lackjaw, who didn't, and was beginning to wish Cohen hadn't gone out into all this hot sunlight. It ought to have run away, you think? Yes, or bitten your leg off. Ah, said the dwarf. He took Cohen gently by the arm. "'It's nice and shady over here,' he said. "'Why don't you just have a little—' "'Cohen shook him off. "'It's watching that wall,' he said. "'Look, that's why it's not taking any notice of us. "'It's staring at the wall.' "'Yes, that's right,' said Lackjaw soothingly. "'Of course it's watching that little wall with its little eyes. "'Don't be an idiot. It hasn't got any eyes,' snapped Cohen. "'Oh, sorry, sorry,' said Lackjaw hurriedly. "'It's watching the wall without eyes. Sorry.' "'I think it's worried about something,' said Cohen. "'Well, it would be, wouldn't it?' said Lackjaw. "'I expect it just wants us to go off somewhere and leave it alone.' "'I think it's very puzzled,' Cohen added. "'Yes, it certainly looks puzzled,' said the dwarf. Cohen glared at him. "'How can you tell?' he snapped. It struck Lackjaw that the rolls were unfairly reversing. He looked from Cohen to the box, his mouth opening and shutting. "'How can you tell?' he said. But Cohen wasn't listening anyway. He sat down in front of the box, assuming that the bit with the keyhole was the front, and watched it intently. Lackjaw backed away. "'Funny,' said his mind, "'but the damn thing is looking at me.' "'All right,' said Cohen. "'I know you and me don't see eye to eye, "'but we're all trying to find someone we care for, okay?' "'Um,' said Lackjaw, "'and realised that Cohen was talking to the box. "'So tell me where they've gone.' "'As Lackjaw looked on in horror, "'the luggage extended its little legs, "'braced itself and ran full tilt at the nearest wall. "'Clay bricks and dusty mortar exploded around it. "'Cohen peered through the hole.' There was a small, grubby storeroom on the other side of it. The luggage stood in the middle of the floor, 
radiating extreme bafflement. Shop, said Two Flower. Anyone here? said Bethan. Oh, said Rincewind. I think we ought to sit him down somewhere and get him a glass of water, said Two Flower, if there's one here. There's everything else, said Bethan. The room was full of shelves, and the shelves were full of everything. Things that couldn't be accommodated on them hung in bunches from the dark and shadowy ceiling. Boxes and sacks of everything spilled onto the floor. There was no sound from outside. Bethan looked around and found out why. I've never seen so much stuff, said Two Flower. There's one thing it's out of stock of, said Bethan firmly. How can you tell? You just have to look. It's fresh out of exits. Two Flower turned around. Where the door and window had been, there were shelves stacked with boxes. They looked as though they'd been there for a long time. Two Flower sat Rincewind down on a rickety chair by the counter and poked doubtfully at the shelves. There were boxes of nails and hairbrushes. There were bars of soap faded with age. There was a stack of jars containing deliquescent bath salts, to which someone had fixed a rather sad and jaunty little notice announcing, in the face of all the evidence, that one would make an ideal gift. There was also quite a lot of dust. Bethan peered at the shelves on the other wall and laughed. Would you look at this? she said. Two Flower looked. She was holding, well, it was a little mountain chalet, but with seashells stuck all over it, and then the perpetrator had written, A Special Souvenir, in poker work on the roof, which, of course, opened so that cigarettes could be kept in it, and played a tinny little tune. Have you ever seen anything like it? she said. Two Flower shook his head. His mouth dropped open. Are you all right? said Bethan. I think it's... The most beautiful thing I've ever seen, he said. There was a whirring noise overhead. They looked up. A big black globe had lowered itself from the darkness of the ceiling. Little red lights flashed on and off on it, and as they stared it spun around and looked at them with a big glass eye. It was menacing, that eye. It seemed to suggest very emphatically that it was watching something distasteful. Hello, said Two Flower. A head appeared over the edge of the counter. It looked angry. I hope you were intending to pay for that, it said nastily. Its expression suggested that it expected Rincewind to say yes, and that it wouldn't believe him. This, said Bethan, I wouldn't buy this if you threw in a hat full of rubies, and I'll buy it. How much, said Two Flower, urgently reaching into his pockets. His face fell. Actually, I haven't got any money, he said. It's in my luggage, but I... There was a snort. The head disappeared from behind the counter and reappeared from behind a display of toothbrushes. It belonged to a very small man, almost hidden behind a green apron. He seemed very upset. No money, he said. You come into my shop. We didn't mean to, said Two Flower quickly. We didn't notice it was there. It wasn't, said Bethan firmly. It's magical, isn't it? The small shopkeeper hesitated. Yes, he reluctantly agreed. A bit. A bit, said Bethan, a bit magical. Quite a bit, then, he conceded, backing away, and... All right, he agreed, as Bethan continued to glare at him. It's magical. I can't help it. The bloody door hasn't been and gone again, has it? Yes, and we're not happy about that thing in the ceiling. He looked up and frowned. 
Then he disappeared through a little beaded doorway, half hidden among the merchandise. There was a lot of clanking and whirring, and the black globe disappeared into the shadows. It was replaced by, in succession, a bunch of herbs, a mobile advertising something Two-Flower had never heard of, but which was apparently a bedtime drink, a suit of armour, and a stuffed crocodile with a lifelike expression of extreme pain and surprise. The shopkeeper reappeared. Better, he demanded. It's an improvement, said Two-Flower doubtfully. I like the herbs best. At this point, Rincewind groaned. He was about to wake up. There have been three general theories put forward to explain the phenomenon of the wandering shops, or, as they're generically known, Tabernae Vagantes. The first postulates that many thousands of years ago there evolved somewhere in the multiverse a race whose single talent was to buy cheap and sell dear. Soon they controlled a vast galactic empire, or as they put it, emporium, and the more advanced members of the species found a way to equip their very shops with unique propulsion units that could break the dark walls of space itself and open up vast new markets. And long after the worlds of the emporium perished in the heat death of their particular universe, after one last defiant fire sale, the wandering star shops still ply their trade, eating their way through the pages of space-time like a worm through a three-volume novel. The second is that they are the creation of a sympathetic fate, charged with the role of supplying exactly the right thing at the right time. The third is that they are simply a very clever way of getting around the various Sunday closing acts. All these theories, diverse as they are, have two things in common— they explain the observed facts, and they're completely and utterly wrong. Rincewind opened his eyes and lay for a moment looking up at the stuffed reptile. It was not the best thing to see when awakening from troubled dreams. Magic. So that's what it felt like. No wonder wizards didn't have much truck with sex. Rincewind knew what orgasms were, of course. He'd had a few in his time, sometimes even in company, but nothing in his experience even approximated to that tight, hot moment when every nerve in his body streamed with blue-white fire and raw magic had blazed forth from his fingers. It filled you and lifted you, and you surfed down the rising, curling wave of elemental force. No wonder wizards fought for power. And so on. The spell in his head had been doing it, though, not Rincewind. He was really beginning to hate that spell. He was sure that if it hadn't frightened away all the other spells he'd tried to learn, he could have been a decent wizard in his own right. Somewhere in Rincewind's battered soul, the worm of rebellion flashed a fang. Right, he thought. You're going back into the octavo, first chance I get. He sat up. Where the hell is this? he said, grabbing his head to stop it exploding. A shop, said Two Flower mournfully. I hope it sells knives, because I think I'd like to cut my head off, said Rincewind. Something about the expression of the two opposite him sobered him up. That was a joke, he said. Mainly a joke, anyway. Why are we in this shop? We can't get out, said Bethan. The doors disappeared, added Two Flower helpfully. Rincewind stood up a little shakily. Oh, he said. One of those shops? All right, said the shopkeeper testily. It's magical, yes, it moves around, yes. No, I'm not telling you why. Can I have a drink of water, please, said Rincewind. The shopkeeper looked affronted. First no money, then they want a glass of water, he snapped. That's just about... 
Bethan snorted and strode across to the little man who tried to back away. He was too late. She picked him up by his apron straps and glared at him eye to eye. Torn though her dress was, disarrayed though her hair was, she became for a moment the symbol of every woman who has caught a man with his thumb on the scales of life. Time is money, she hissed. I'll give you thirty seconds to give him a glass of water. I think that's a bargain, don't you? I say, Two Flower whispered, she's a real terror when she's roused, isn't she? Yes, said Rincewind, without enthusiasm. All right, all right, said the shopkeeper, visibly cowed. And then you can let us out. That's fine by me. I wasn't open for business anyway. I just stopped for a few seconds to get my bearings and you barged in. He grumbled off through the bead curtains and returned with a cup of water. I washed it out special, he said, avoiding Bethan's gaze. Rincewind looked at the liquid in the cup. It had probably been clean before it was poured in. Now drinking it would be genocide for thousands of innocent germs. He put it down carefully. Now I'm going to have a good wash, stated Bethan, and stalked off through the curtain. The shopkeeper waved a hand vaguely and looked appealingly at Rincewind and Two Flower. She's not bad, said Two Flower. She's going to marry a friend of ours. Does he know? Things not so good in the star shop business, said Rincewind, as sympathetically as he could manage. The little man shuddered. You wouldn't believe it he said. I mean, you learn not to expect much. You make a sale here and there. It's a living, you know what I mean? But these people you've got these days, the ones with these star things painted on their faces, well, I hardly have time to open the store and they're threatening to burn it down. Too magical, they say. So I say, of course magical. What else? Are there a lot of them about, then? said Rincewind. All over the disc, friend. Don't ask me why. They believe a star is going to crash into the disc, said Rincewind. Is it? Lots of people think so. That's a shame. I've done good business here. Too magical, they say. What's wrong with magic? That's what I'd like to know. What will you do? said Two Flower. Ah, go to some other universe. There's plenty around, said the shopkeeper airily. Thanks for telling me about the star, though. Can I drop you off somewhere? The spell gave Rincewind's mind a kick. Um, no, he said. I think perhaps we'd better stay to see it through, you know. You're not worried about this star thing, then? The star is life, not death, said Rincewind. How's that? How's what? You did it again, said Two Flower, pointing an accusing finger. You say things and then don't know you've said them. I just said we'd better stay, said Rincewind. You said the star was life, not death said Two Flower. Your voice went all crackly and far away, didn't it? He turned to the shopkeeper for confirmation. That's true, said the little man. I thought his eyes crossed a bit, too. It's the spell, then, said Rincewind. It's trying to take me over. It knows what's going to happen, and I think it wants to go to Ankh Morpork. I want to go, too, he added defiantly. Can you take us there? Is that the big city on the Ankh? Sprawling place? Smells of cesspits? "'It has an ancient and honourable history,' said Rincewind, his voice stiff with injured civic pride. "'That's not how you described it to me,' said Two Flower. "'You told me it was the only city that actually started out decadent.' Rincewind looked embarrassed. "'Yes, but, well, it's my home, don't you see?' "'No,' said the shopkeeper. "'Not really. I always say home is where you hang your hat.' "'Um, no,' said Two Flower, always anxious to enlighten.' Where you hang your hat is a hat stand. 
uh, home is... I'll just go and see about setting you on your way, said the shopkeeper hurriedly as Bethan came in. He scooted past her. Two flower followed him. On the other side of the curtain was a room with a small bed, a rather grubby stove, and a three-legged table. Then the shopkeeper did something to the table. There was a noise like a cork coming reluctantly out of a bottle, and the room contained a wall-to-wall universe. Don't be frightened, said the shopkeeper, as stars streamed past. I'm not frightened, said Twoflower, his eyes sparkling. Oh, said the shopkeeper, slightly annoyed. Anyway, it's just imagery generated by the shop. It's not real. And you can go anywhere? Oh, no, said the shopkeeper, deeply shocked. There's all kinds of fail-safes built in. After all, there'd be no point in going somewhere with insufficient per capita disposable income. And there's got to be a suitable wall, of course. Ah, here we are. This is your universe. Very bijou, I always think. A sort of universette. Here is the blackness of space, the myriad stars gleaming like diamond dust, or as some people would say, like great balls of exploding hydrogen a very long way off. But then some people would say anything. A shadow starts to blot out the distant glitter, and it is blacker than space itself. From here it also looks a great deal bigger because space is not really big, it is simply somewhere to be big in. Planets are big, but planets are meant to be big, and there is nothing clever about being the right size. But this shape blotting out the sky like the footfall of God isn't a planet. It is a turtle, ten thousand miles long from its crater-pocked head to its armoured tail. And Great Artuin is huge. Great flippers rise and fall ponderously, warping space into strange shapes. The disc world slides across the sky like a royal barge. But even great Artuin is struggling now as it leaves the free depth of space and must fight the tormenting pressures of the solar shallows. Magic is weaker here on the littoral of light. Many more days of this and the disc world will be stripped away by the pressures of reality. Great Artuin knows this, but Great Artuin can recall doing all this before, many thousands of years ago. The Astrochelonian's eyes, glowing red in the light of the dwarf star, are not focused on it, but at a little patch of space nearby. Yes, but where are we? said Twoflower. The shopkeeper hunched over his table, just shrugged. I don't think we're anywhere, he said. We're in a contangent incongruity, I believe. I could be wrong. The shop generally knows what it's doing. You mean you don't? Ah, pick up a bit here and there. The shopkeeper blew his nose. Sometimes I land on a world where they understand these things. He turned a pair of small, sad eyes on Twoflower. You've got a kind face, sir. I don't mind telling you. Telling me what? It's no life, you know, minding the shop, never settling down, always on the move, never closing. Why don't you stop, then? Ah, that's it, you see, sir, I can't. I'm under a curse, I am, a terrible thing. He blew his nose again. Cursed to run a shop. Forever, sir, forever, and never closing, for hundreds of years. There was this sorcerer, you see. I did a terrible thing. In a shop, said Twoflower. Oh, yes, 
I can't remember what it was he wanted, but when he asked for it, I, I gave one of those sucking-in noises, you know, like uh, whistling only backwards, he demonstrated. Tooflower looked sombre, but he was at heart a kind man and always ready to forgive. I see, he said slowly. Even so, that's not all. Oh, I told him there was no demand for it. After making the sucking noise? Yes, I probably grinned too. Oh, dear. You didn't call him Squire, did you? I, I, I may have done. Hmm, there's more. Surely not. Yes, I said I could order it and he could come back next day. That doesn't sound too bad, said Two Flower, who alone of all the people in the multiverse allowed shops to order things for him and didn't object at all to paying quite large sums of money to reimburse the shopkeeper for the inconvenience of having a bit of stock in his store often for several hours. It was early closing day, said the shopkeeper. Oh, yes, and I heard him rattling the door handle. I had this sign on the door, you know, it said something like, closed even for the sale of necromancer cigarettes. Anyway, I heard him banging, and I laughed. You laughed? Yes, like this. <laughs> Probably not a wise thing to do, said Two Flower, shaking his head. I know, I know, my father always said, he said, do not peddle in the affairs of wizards. Anyway, I heard him shouting something about never closing again, and a lot of words I couldn't understand, and then the shop... The shop, the shop came alive. And you've wandered like this ever since? Yes. I suppose one day I might find the sorcerer, and perhaps the thing he wanted will be in stock. Until then, I must go from place to place. That was a terrible thing to do, said Two Flower. The shopkeeper wiped his nose on his apron. Thank you, he said. Even so, he shouldn't have cursed you quite so badly. Two-Flower added. Oh, yes. Well. The shopkeeper straightened his apron and made a brave little attempt to pull himself together. Anyway, this isn't getting you to Ankh-Morpork, pork, is it? Funny thing is, said Two-Flower, that I bought my luggage in a shop like this once. Another shop, I mean. Oh, yes, there's several of us, said the shopkeeper, turning back to the table. That sorcerer was a very impatient man, I understand. "'Endlessly roaming through the universe,' mused Two-Flower. "'That's right. Mind you, there is a saving on the rates.' "'Rates?' "'Yes, there.' The shopkeeper paused and wrinkled his forehead. "'I can't quite remember. It was such a long time ago. Rates. Rates.' "'Um, very large mice?' "'Yes, that's probably it.' Hold on. It's thinking about something, said Cohen. Lackjaw looked up wearily. It had been quite nice sitting here in the shade. He had just worked out that in trying to escape from a city of crazed madmen, he had appeared to have allowed one madman to give him his full attention. He wondered whether he would live to regret this. He earnestly hoped so. Oh, yes, it's definitely thinking, he said bitterly. Anyone can see that. I think he's found them. Oh, uh, good. Hold on to it. Are you mad? said Lackjaw. I know this thing, trust me. Anyway, would you rather be left with all these star people? They might be interested in having a talk with you. 
Cohen sidled over to the luggage and then flung himself astride it. It took no notice. Hurry up, he said. I think it's going to go. Lackjaw shrugged and climbed on gingerly behind Cohen. Oh, he said, and how does it grow? Ankh-Morpork, Pearl of Cities. This is not a completely accurate description, of course. It was not round and shiny, but even its worst enemies would agree that if you had to liken Ankh-Morpork to anything, then it might as well be a piece of rubbish covered with the diseased secretions of a dying mollusk. There have been bigger cities. There have been richer cities. There have certainly been prettier cities. But no city in the multiverse could rival Ankh-Morpork for its smell. The ancient ones, who know everything about all the universes and have smelt the smells of Calcutta and Kuzk and Dauntacum Musport, have agreed that even these fine examples of nasal poetry are mere limericks when set against the glory of the Ankh-Morpork smell. You can talk about ramps, you can talk about garlic, you can talk about France, go on, but if you haven't smelled Ankh-Morpork on a hot day, you haven't smelled anything. The citizens are proud of it. They carry chairs outside to enjoy it on a really good day. They puff out their cheeks and slap their chests and comment cheerfully on its little distinctive nuances. They've even put up a statue to it to commemorate the time when the troops of a rival state tried to invade by stealth one dark night and managed to get to the top of the walls before, to their horror, their nose plugs gave out. Rich merchants who have spent many years abroad sent back home for specially stoppered and sealed bottles of the stuff, which brings tears to their eyes. It has that kind of effect. There is only really one way to describe the effect the smell of Ankh-Morpork has on the visiting nose, and that is by analogy. Take a tartan, sprinkle it with confetti, light it with strobe lights, now take a chameleon. Put the chameleon on the tartan, watch it closely. See? Which explains why, when the shop finally materialised in Ankh-Morpork, Rincewind sat bolt upright and said, We're here. Bethan went pale, and Two Flower, who had no sense of smell, said, Really? How can you tell? It had been a long afternoon. They had broken into real space in a number of walls in a variety of cities, because, according to the shopkeeper, the disc's magical field was playing up and upsetting everything. All the cities were empty of most of their citizens, and belonged to roaming gangs of crazed left-ear people. Where do they all come from? said Two Flower, as they fled yet another mob. "'Inside every sane person there's a madman struggling to get out,' said the shopkeeper. "'That's what I've always thought. "'No one goes mad quicker than a totally sane person.' "'That doesn't make sense,' said Bethan. "'Or if it makes sense, I don't like it.' "'The star was bigger than the sun. "'There would be no night tonight. "'On the opposite horizon, the disc's own sunlit was doing its best to set normally.' but the general effect of all that red light was to make the city, never particularly beautiful, look like something painted by a fanatical artist after a bad time on the shoe polish. But it was home. Rincewind peered up and down the empty street and felt almost happy. At the back of his mind, the spell was kicking up a ruckus, but he ignored it. Maybe it was true that magic was getting weaker as the star got nearer, or perhaps he'd had the spell in his head for so long he had built up some kind of psychic immunity, but he found he could resist it. We're in the docks, he declared. Just smell that sea air. 
"'Oh,' said Bethan, leaning against the wall. "'Yes.' "'That's ozone, that is,' said Rincewind. "'That's air with character, that is.' He breathed deeply. Two-Flower turned to the shopkeeper. "'Well, I hope you find your sorcerer,' he said. "'Sorry we didn't buy anything, but all my money's in my luggage, you see.' The shopkeeper pushed something into his hand. "'A little gift,' he said. "'You'll need it.' He darted back into his shop. The bell jangled. The sign saying, "'Call again tomorrow for spoon-fetchers leeches, the little suckers,' banged forlornly against the door, and the shop faded into the brickwork as though it had never been. Two-Flower reached out gingerly and touched the wall, not quite believing it. "'What's in the bag?' said Rincewind. It was a thick brown paper bag with string handles. "'If it sprouts legs, I don't want to know about it,' said Bethan. Two-Flower peered inside and pulled out the contents. "'Is that all?' said Rincewind. "'A little house with shells on.' "'It's very useful,' said Two-Flower defensively. "'You can keep cigarettes in it.' "'And they're what you really need, are they?' said Rincewind. "'I'd plump for a bottle of really strong suntan oil,' said Bethan. "'Come on,' said Rincewind, and set off down the street. "'The others followed. "'It occurred to Two-Flower that some words of comfort were called for, "'a little tactful small talk to take Bethan out of herself, as he would put it, "'and generally cheer her up. "'Don't worry,' he said. "'There's just a chance that Cohen might still be alive.' "'Oh, I expect he's alive all right,' she said, "'stamping along the cobbles as if she nursed a personal grievance against each one of them. "'You don't live to be eighty-seven in his job if you go around dying all the time.' "'But he's not here.' "'Nor is my luggage,' said Two-Flower. "'Of course, that's not the same thing. "'Do you think the star is going to hit the disc?' "'No,' said Two-Flower confidently. "'Why not?' "'Because Rincewind doesn't think so.' "'She looked at him in amazement. "'You see,' the tourist went on, "'you know that thing you do with seaweed?' Bethan, brought up on the vortex plains, had only heard of the sea in stories, and had decided she didn't like it. She looked blank. Eat it? No, what you do is you hang it up outside your door, and it tells you if it's going to rain. Another thing Bethan had learned was that there was no real point in trying to understand anything Two Flower said, and that all anyone could do was run alongside the conversation and hope to jump on as it turned a corner. I see, she said. "'Rincewind is like that, you see. "'Like seaweed. "'Yes. "'If there was anything at all to be frightened about, he'd be frightened. "'But he's not. "'The star is just about the only thing I've ever seen him not frightened of. "'If he's not worried, then take it from me. "'There's nothing to worry about.' "'It's not going to rain,' said Bethan. "'Well, no. "'Metaphorically speaking. "'Oh. "'Bethan decided not to ask what metaphorically meant, "'in case it was something to do with seaweed.' "'Rincewind turned around. "'Come on,' he said. "'Not far now.' "'Where to?' said Two-Flower. "'Unseen University, of course.' "'Is that wise?' "'Probably not, but I'm still going.' "'Rincewind paused, his face a mask of pain. "'He put his hand to his ears and groaned. "'Spell giving you trouble?' "'Yeah.' "'Try humming.' "'Rincewind grimaced. "'I'm going to get rid of this thing,' he said thickly. "'It's going back into the book where it belongs. "'I want my head back.' "'But then,' Two-Flower began and stopped. "'They could all hear it, a distant chanting and the stamping of many feet. "'Do you think it's the star, people?' said Bethan. "'It was. 
The lead marchers came around a corner a hundred yards away, behind a ragged white banner with an eight-pointed star on it. Not just star people, said Two Flower, all kinds of people. The crowd swept them up in its passage. One moment they were standing in the deserted street, the next they were perforce moving with a tide of humanity that bore them onwards through the city. Torchlight flickered easily on the damp tunnels far under the university as the heads of the eight orders of wizardry filed onwards. At least it's cool down here, said one. We shouldn't be down here. Trumon, who was leading the party, said nothing. But he was thinking very hard. He was thinking about the bottle of oil in his belt and the eight keys the wizards carried. Eight keys that would fit the eight locks that chained the octavo to its lectern. He was thinking that old wizards who sense that magic is draining away are preoccupied with their own problems and are perhaps less alert than they should be. He was thinking that within a few minutes the octavo, the greatest concentration of magic on the disc, would be under his hands. Despite the coolness of the tunnel, he began to sweat. They came to a lead-lined door set in sheer stone. Trumon took a heavy key. A good, honest iron key, not like the twisted and disconcerting keys that would unlock the octavo, and gave the lock a squirt of oil, inserted the key, turned it. The lock squeaked open protestingly. Are we of one resolve? said Trumon. There was a series of vaguely affirmative grunts. He pushed at the door. A warm gale of thick and somehow oily air rolled over them. The air was filled with a high-pitched and unpleasant chittering. Tiny sparks of octarine fire flared off every nose, fingernail and beard. The wizards, their heads bowed against the storm of randomised magic that blew out of the room, pushed forward. Half-formed shapes giggled and fluttered around them as the nightmare inhabitants of the dungeon dimensions constantly probed, with things that passed for fingers only because they were at the ends of their arms, for an unguarded entry into the circle of firelight that passed for the universe of reason and order. Even at this bad time for all things magical, even in a room designed to damp down all magical vibrations, the octavo was still crackling with power. There was no real need for the torches. The octavo filled the room with a dull, sullen light, which wasn't strictly light at all, but the opposite of light. Darkness isn't the opposite of light. It is simply its absence. And what was radiating from the book was the light that lies on the far side of darkness. The light fantastic. It was a rather disappointing purple colour. As has been noted before, the octavo was chained to a lectern carved into the shape of something that looked vaguely avian, slightly reptilian, and horribly alive. Two glittering eyes regarded the wizards with hooded hatred. I saw it move, said one of them. We're safe so long as we don't touch the book, said Trumon. He pulled a scroll out of his belt and unrolled it. Bring that torch here, he said, and put that cigarette out. He waited for the explosion of infuriated pride, but none came. Instead, the offending mage removed the dog end from his lips with trembling fingers and ground it into the floor. Trumon exulted. So, he thought, they do what I say. Just for now, maybe, but just for now is enough. He peered at the crabby writing of a wizard long dead. Right, he said. Let's see. 
to appease it, the thing that is the guardian. The crowd surged over one of the bridges that linked Moorpork with Ark. Below it, the river, turgid at the best of times, was a mere trickle which steamed. The bridge shook under their feet rather more than it should. Strange ripples ran across the muddy remains of the river. A few tiles slid off the roof of a nearby house. What was that? said Two Flower. Bethan looked behind them and screamed. The star was rising. As the disc's own sun scurried for safety below the horizon, the great bloated ball of the star climbed slowly into the sky until the whole of it was several degrees above the edge of the world. They pulled Rincewind into the safety of a doorway. The crowd hardly noticed them, but ran on, terrified as lemmings. The star's got spots on, said Two Flower. No, said Rincewind, they're things. Things going around the star, like the sun goes around the disc, but they're close in because... He paused. I nearly know. Know what? I've got to get rid of this spell. Which way is the university? said Bethan. This way, said Rincewind, pointing along a street. It must be very popular. That's where everyone's going. I wonder why, said Two Flower. Somehow, said Rincewind... I don't think it's to enrol for evening classes. In fact, Unseen University was under siege, or at least those parts of it that extruded into the usual everyday dimensions were under siege. The crowds outside its gates were, generally, making one of two demands. They were demanding that either, A, the wizards should stop messing about and get rid of the star, or, and this was the demand favoured by the star people, that... B. They should cease all magic and commit suicide in good order, thus ridding the disc of the curse of magic and warding off the terrible threat in the sky. The wizards on the other side of the walls had no idea how to do A, and no intention of doing B, and many had in fact plumped for C, which largely consisted of nipping out of hidden side doors and having it away on their toes as fast as possible, if not faster. What reliable magic still remained in the university was being channelled into keeping the great gates secure. The wizards were learning that while it was all very fine and impressive to have a set of gates that were locked by magic, it ought to have occurred to the builders to include some sort of emergency backup device, such as, for example, a pair of ordinary, unimpressive, stout iron bolts. In the square outside the gates, several large bonfires had been lit, for effect as much as anything else, because the heat from the star was scorching. "'But you can still see the stars,' said Two Flower. "'The other stars, I mean. The little ones.' In a black sky. Rincewind ignored him. He was looking at the gates. A group of star people and citizens were trying to batter them down. It's hopeless, said Bethan. We'll never get in. Where are you going? For a walk, said Rincewind. He was setting off determinedly down a side street. There were one or two freelance rioters here, mostly engaged in wrecking shops. Rincewind took no notice, but followed the wall until it ran parallel to a dark alley that had the usual unfortunate smell of all alleys everywhere. Then he started looking very closely at the stonework. The wall here was twenty feet high and topped with cruel metal spikes. I need a knife, he said. You going to cut your way through? Just find me a knife, said Rincewind. He started to tap stones. Two Flower and Bethan looked at each other and shrugged. A few minutes later they returned with a selection of knives and Two Flower had even managed to find a sword. We just helped ourselves, said Bethan. But we left some money said Two Flower. I mean, we would have left some money if we'd had any. So he insisted on writing a note, said Bethan wearily. 
Two Flower drew himself up to his full height, which was hardly worth it. I see no reason, he began stiffly. Yes, yes, said Betham, sitting down glumly. I know you don't. Rinswind, all the shops have been smashed open. There was a whole bunch of people across the street helping themselves to musical instruments. Can you believe that? Yeah, said Rinswind, picking up a knife and testing its blade thoughtfully. Luters, I expect. He thrust the blade into the wall, twisted it, and stepped back as a heavy stone fell out. He looked up, counting under his breath, and levered another stone from its socket. How did you do that? said Two Flower. Just give me a leg up, will you? said Rincewind. A moment later, his feet wedged into the holes he had created. He was making further steps halfway up the wall. It's been like this for centuries, his voice floated down. Some of the stones haven't got any mortar. Secret entrance, see? Watch out below. Another stone cracked onto the cobbles. Students made it long ago, said Rincewind. Handy way in and out after lights out. Ah, said Two Flower, I understand. Over the wall and out to brightly lit taverners to drink and sing and recite poetry, yes? Nearly right, except for the singing and the poetry, yes, said Rincewind. Couple of these spikes should be loose. There was a clang. There's not much of a drop this side, came his voice after a few seconds. Come on, then, if you're coming. And so it was that Rincewind, Two Flower and Bethan entered Unseen University. Elsewhere on the campus, the eight wizards inserted their keys and with many a worried glance at one another turned them. There was a faint little snicking sound as the lock slid open. The octavo was unchained. A faint octarine light played across its bindings. Trumon reached out and picked it up and none of the others objected. His arm tingled. He turned towards the door. Now to the great hall, brothers, he said, if I may lead the way. And there were no objections. He reached the door with the book tucked under his arm. It felt hot and somehow prickly. At every step he expected a cry, a protest, and none came. He had to use every ounce of control to stop himself from laughing. It was easier than he could have imagined. The others were halfway across the claustrophobic dungeon by the time he was through the door, and perhaps they had noticed something in the set of his shoulders, but it was too late, because he had crossed the threshold, gripped the handle, slammed the door, turned the key, smiled the smile. He walked easily back along the corridor, ignoring the enraged screams of the wizards who had just discovered how impossible it is to pass spells in a room built to be impervious to magic. The octavo squirmed but Trumon held it tightly. Now he ran, putting out of his mind the horrible sensations under his arm as the book shape-changed into things hairy, skeletal and spiky. His hand went numb. The faint chittering noises he had been hearing grew in volume, and there were other sounds behind them. Leering sounds, beckoning sounds, sounds made by the voices of unimaginable horrors that Trumon found it all too easy to imagine. As he ran across the great hall and up the main staircase, the shadows began to move and reform and close in around him. And he also became aware that something was following, something with skittery legs moving obscenely fast. Ice formed on the walls. Doorways lunged at him as he barreled past. Underfoot, the stairs began to feel just like a tongue. Not for nothing had Trumon spent long hours in the university's curious equivalent of a gymnasium, building up mental muscle. Don't trust the senses, he knew, because they can be deceived. 
The stairs are there somewhere. Will them to be there. Summon them into being as you climb, and boy, you better be good at it, because this isn't all imagination. Great Artuin slowed. With flippers the size of continents, the sky turtle fought the pull of the star and waited. There would not be long to wait. Rincewind sidled into the great hall. There were a few torches burning, and it looked as though it had been set up for some sort of magical work. But the ceremonial candlesticks had been overturned, the complex octograms chalked on the floor were scuffed as if something had danced on them, and the air was full of a smell unpleasant even by Ankh Morpork's broad standards. There was a hint of sulphur to it, but that underlay something worse. It smelt like the bottom of a pond. There was a distant crash and a lot of shouting. "'Looks like the gates have gone down,' said Rincewind. "'Let's get out of here,' said Bethan. "'The cellars are this way,' said Rincewind, and set off through an arch. "'Down there?' "'Yes. Would you rather stay here?' He took a torch from its bracket on the wall and started down the steps. After a few flights, the walls stopped being panelled and were bare stone. Here and there, heavy doors had been propped open. "'I heard something,' said Two Flower. Rincewind listened. There did seem to be a noise coming from the depths below. It didn't sound frightening. It sounded like a lot of people hammering on a door and shouting, "'Oi!' "'It's not those things from the dungeon dimensions you were telling us about, is it?' said Bethan. "'They don't swear like that,' said Rincewind. "'Come on.' They hurried along the dripping passages, following the screamed curses and deep hacking coughs that were somehow reassuring. Anything that wheezed like that, the listeners decided, couldn't possibly represent a danger. At last they came to a door set in an alcove. It looked strong enough to hold back the sea. There was a tiny grill. "'Hey!' shouted Rincewind. It wasn't very useful, but he couldn't think of anything better. There was a sudden silence. Then a voice from the other side of the door said, very slowly, "'Who is out there?' End of CD 6